this is its mental podcast today. I have a special guest from Barcelona. Uh, I met her when I was touring there and she's so funny. So I was like, oh, I need to interview her. And I talk with her. She has a really uh, interesting journey. So today I want to uh, talk with her and uh, learn about her story. And uh, too bad that this podcast is only audio, so you are not going to see her amazingly cute cat on camera. So Mara, do you want to introduce your cat and yourself? Uh, first, my cat, of course, because she's more important. Uh, my cat is called Regina. Uh, she is a Romanian street cat, and she has been my baby since 12 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, and hopefully she's going to live at least eight more years. That's what my plan is. <laughs> um, I am Romanian. I've been living in Barcelona for 10 years. I'm an English teacher. And uh, a year and a bit ago, I started doing stand-up comedy. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Many things I could say about myself, but let's stick to this for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... Uh, when I talk with you, uh, I ask you, how did you start to do comedy? Uh, could you also share with us? Yes. Um, I also run a pub quiz uh, every Sunday. And the pub quiz I started five years ago. And so when you have a pub quiz and you're doing like the MC part and you're hosting, you have a lot of freedom to uh, make silly jokes whenever you want to improvise stuff. Um I guess a bit of crowd work because you have all the people there. So um, I've always liked being a bit of a clown and making word jokes and word games and um, just I enjoy making people laugh. So I think throughout the years of hosting the quiz, I was like, am I funny? Like, am I legitimately funny? And then slowly some comedy people from the Barcelona comedy scene started coming to my quiz. And then I started going to their events. And you know, when you go to your first comedy show and you go, oh, this is awesome. Could I be as fun? I mean, like, maybe I am, at, and like, maybe I have the capacity. And slowly you start to think of jokes and, and then you start planning it. And, um, and then I decided, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Uh, I watched a Steve Martin masterclass on masterclass.com. <laughs> he had one and I was like super inspired and, uh, And I wrote a lot of material. And then it was the 1st of March, 2020, uh, when I got a spot at an open mic in Barcelona. It's called Atomic Comedy. And so I'm an atomic comedy baby. And uh, and I had my first five minutes. And I had so much material prepared about different things. But just the week before, I decided to scrap all of it and do only uh, COVID jokes. Because it was just the start of an epidemic, not a pandemic. Uh, on the 1st of March. And I was like, oh, this is funny. I'm going to make these jokes. I did say one thing in my five minute set, which was, this is the last week that these jokes are still funny. <laughs> I was right. Um, so I got to do my first stand up uh, two weeks before the lockdown started. And then I had to wait a year and a half before I could go back on stage. So, yeah. Wow. So you, wow. So you actually, your stage time is only like half a year? No, it's so I started my first time in 2020, yeah. like 1st of March, 2020. And I know it doesn't feel like it, but it's already 2022. Yeah. So yeah. I had 
one time and then like one year and a bit break. Then I started again. Yeah, actually, you're right. It's I'm getting the time wrong. And I started again last spring. So last March is my second time performing. Oh, okay, so, so it's like one year. Like, yeah, one year and that one time. <laughs> yeah, because I I feel like you are way too good for six months experience. No. But but I think like you you do lots of like um, shorter jokes and uh, because you are an English teacher, I I guess like you you are really good at uh, control the the language. Thank you for that. Um, I'll I'll accept that. I received that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when we talked uh, privately previously, you you said um, uh, when you started to do comedy, there were some uh, life changes uh, happening in your private life. Yeah. yeah. Um, as well. So when I when I first did my my first set ever, I was living with my ex boyfriend. Uh, we had been living together for five years and a half. Then the pandemic came and that was a bit, uh, well, you know, devastating for everybody. Um, and then that summer when things started to sort of finally calm down and relax, um, Barcelona was still quite dead. There were not a lot of things happening. Bars were still not open. There were masks everywhere. And so I decided for, because I didn't know what to do with my time in the summertime, normally I traveled. I decided this is the opportunity for me to go and travel and do something I've always wanted to do, which is to go to Iceland and stay and, and do something there for two months. So I did that with a friend of mine. I went to Iceland. We found a job in a hotel. Um, I was working in all the things they needed, like uh, cleaning rooms. Um, sorry, this is a cat tail in the screen. Uh, cleaning rooms, cleaning bathrooms. It was really funny because I told my parents, I'm going to go to work in a hotel in Iceland. And they were like, oh, so you're, you know, you're going to work front desk. And I said, I'm going to work whatever they need. And when my mom called me, she said, what are you doing now? And I'm like, I'm cleaning a bathroom. He's like, oh, a bathroom, but you have a master's degree. <laughs> and I, yeah, I do. But like, no job is above me. Like jobs are jobs. I have a question. Does Tell you me. get uh, did you get paid more clean bathroom in Iceland than being an English teacher in Barcelona? I could have if it was a different hotel, but I was actually getting paid more. You know, also I was getting free housing, so oh, okay. In the end, I think it was worth it because I was living for free in Iceland, and that moment specifically, I was somewhere where I didn't have to wear a mask outside oh. or anywhere. That's great. So compare that to Barcelona, where everywhere you went, you had to wear a mask all the time. Just the fact that you could see people's faces and you could shake hands with strangers was like a freedom that, I don't know, it was so, so joyful. I was like, wow, do you remember? Because it was that, like, after six months of lockdown, like, I think everybody was just, I, I you know, I'm going to appreciate it so much when I see another person's face, you know, I'm going to be grateful forever. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Iceland. I worked there for two months. My my boyfriend at the time stayed home with the cats um, and he continued his job because he had his job. I turned 33 in Iceland uh, and I also worked on a farm. And then I also fell in love with the first uh, girl I ever liked. And then that kind of triggered a bit of a, of a I guess, strange period in my life to say the least but now I'm kind of 
reevaluating it and thinking maybe I was just it was in my timeline to have a mental breakdown then mm-hmm. you know like maybe it's not Iceland that is like this big bad place that because of I shouldn't have gone to Iceland look what happened to me I should have stayed home all my life would have been better I'm like no maybe this was just 33 is when it was time you know I was like oh uh, I think it's time for a bit of a you know reevaluation of your life okay so man so that girl ended up kind of ghosting me wonderful and gaslighting me like a bit of a combination of everything you can possibly want in a relationship um, wow she sounds like a man yeah exactly right um <laughs> no women can do it too like you know give women the credit they deserve we can do everything men can do and better <laughs> uh, um because i did try to uh like experiment with relationship structures and i was like okay but i really love my boyfriend i don't want to leave him just because i like somebody else because like it doesn't it, there are, i believe that there are different types of love and different types of romance and and i don't want to be super close minded and i think maybe polyamory can work i mean i'm an insecure person but who knows you know i don't want to lose an opportunity to explore a part of my life that i've never had before so I tried that and that didn't work. So uh here I am, you know. <laughs> uh finally in June 2021 I had no boyfriend, no girlfriend and a bit of a depression or something that I didn't really know what it was. Uh so that was fun. <laughs> and uh, uh you told me that's uh, uh when you uh, were experienced this and you you told yourself uh you will uh continue to do comedy and it's good for you. Yeah, it was like the springtime last spring is when I restarted comedy and then I was still sort of dating that girl and dating my my ex-boyfriend and I was still hoping that things would <laughs> would stay like this and after things got worse and I was suddenly single I took like a, I think three break three months break from comedy from everything I was like I can't go on stage and make jokes it doesn't feel okay but then in september this year is when i started again full speed and i was like fuck this life is too short this can turn into something funny like you know take your trauma turn it into jokes because talking about things make them makes them less terrifying and the more you mention them it's not like if you run away from something it's suddenly going to become less terrifying mm-hmm. it's going to still like the more you run away from it it's going to stay terrifying but if you turn around and you talk about it and you you face it then you can turn it into something beautiful i think that's basically all of art is people having a crisis or crises and and learning to transform them into something else wow i i do believe like uh, it, it, it's uh, commonly said that uh, comedy is a tragedy plus time Uh, mm. I think for my comedy is mostly tragedy plus time. Uh, I <laughs> I feel this is the the, the um um source constant source of my comedy and mm. uh, I I would like to ask you um do you have uh, material about uh, the breakup the relationship you had? I have uh some jokes about the relationship in Iceland that I haven't tried yet but I have them. Um I do have jokes about uh realizing I'm queer a lot of my jokes are about that um I have jokes about my ex-boyfriend and how uh you know like the breakup with him and uh and that and then 
jokes about, of course, discovering Tinder for the first time and all of that crazy world, like, oh God, you know, (laughs) a jungle, what a jungle, you know, (laughs) like it was just the shock of being on Tinder was like, this is very good inspiration for comedy, but also tragic. Yeah, (laughs) like Tinder is really, really scary. Yeah, it is a scary place. So I'm happy that I got off it. <laughs> and and now I'm I'm dating uh, a guy, which again is a source of comedy because a lot of my friends were like, but but you're queer. And I'm like, but yeah, that doesn't mean I, I, I mean, all of a sudden I'm allergic to guys, you know, like mm-hmm. I spent 33 years of my life dating men. Mm-hmm. It's not that all of them are terrifying. And I found one woman and this means that now I'm just walking around the street going boobs <gasps> you know, like, not not really how it works for me personally so yeah yeah, yeah uh, about the breakup I I actually want to consult you um I I also came out from a long-term relationship um uh end of last year um and um we he broke up with me in October uh, he told me he has commitment issue, and uh, then um, I he said he wants wants time to 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 think about it, and eventually two weeks later I told him I I think there's no more uh, thinking I think it's a decision we need to go apart because mm-hmm. um, uh, now with some distance I realized there's something fundamentally is not working, so I broke up with him. And I, I thought I, I processed everything. I thought I, I grieved. I thought I, 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 I moved on. And then worry, I was lucky. Uh, like uh, five weeks later, I, um, I started dating a guy who is a, a good friend uh, of mine. And uh, it's, a, it's a great relationship. And I thought, okay, I, uh, I was sad. I, I, I was depressed and I moved on. Then I'm lucky I met someone. And uh, since a few weeks ago, I feel really depressed and uh, I, I didn't know the answer. And uh, I suddenly I realized that, uh, oh, I just never allowed myself to grieve. Uh, like uh, when in October, when, when my ex-boyfriend broke up with me, uh, I was preparing for a really big project in no- November, which is the first uh, Berlin Mental Health Festival. So it's a week of festival. So I drawn myself into work. And as soon as the festival ended, um, I had my first solo show in, in December and I, I was uh, pre- preparing for it. And since then, like I pr- performed my solo show like 15 times. So every week I'm stressed, every week I'm working on it. And um, last week I suddenly had a little bit perspective. I was like, wow, I realized I'm like avoiding my emotions. I realized I just didn't give myself any time to grieve because I I realized like, uh, I saw the grief means, okay, this is, uh, this relationship ended. I accept the reality. I move on. That's grief, but um, now I start to see it. Oh, it's not only that. It's also like uh, so many years of my life like it has ended, and uh, I once was planning my life with this person, and now I'm lo- now my future is no longer with this person, and that means so many things change in my life, and uh, 
in my planning and also a different lifestyle. I once was living with this person, living with his connections, his friends, his family, and suddenly all those people in my life are gone. And uh, I'm like, uh, of course I wasn't happy. Like uh, all those things I didn't deal with. And uh, also all those good things happened in my life. Like when, when I said I moved on, I just don't think about the past and uh, jump into a re new relationship. And because I want to be loyal for my new boyfriend. So I, of course, I didn't want to think much about the past relationship, but suddenly I realized, oh, it's not about uh, the relationship with this guy, but also like so many years of my life, the good things happened in my life, the good memories in my life, I have cut it off and just, just sealed it and not visited. And I am like, wow, this is really not healthy. Um, mm. So I, I, I decided I will start my grief period, but I just don't know how. Mm. Like, how did you deal with it? And what, what do you think is like a healthy process of a process of all these different things, events happen in your life and deal with all those memories, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Mm. Uh, that's a very good question. And I, I wish I had an answer, but I think uh, one answer is that there is no healthy way of grieving. Like there is no manual because we're all so very different. So for every person, grief is going to look like what you're capable of doing and revisiting in the moment. Because uh, just in the, like the, when it was so fresh and so new, I couldn't, I just felt that if I let myself grieve uh, at the point where I was then with the emotional maturity and the capacity I had then, I felt that I was going to die inside because I don't know, I don't think we're ever taught how to process our emotions. I don't think sadly that most of our parents knew how to do that for us and knew how to, to um, I guess, uh, portray to us or to uh, explain to us, this is what, like, you know, sit with us when we're having difficult feelings, you know, they would normally be like, oh, don't be theatrical, stop crying, what are you crying about, you know, so, so when it's our turn to, to grieve, we do the same thing to ourselves that our parents taught us, which is to say, well, are you sure this is worth crying about? And like, no, no, come on, toughen up, you know, uh, do the 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 right thing which is to suppress things so uh we don't have a manual or we don't have instructions built in for how to process so-called negative emotions that now i don't think they're next necessarily negative but it's just how we think not like ooh, sadness i don't want this anxiety i don't want this depression fuck it so you just push it down push it down push it down and then eventually like a ball in the water it comes back up because you can't keep it down forever right mm -hmm. but um I guess for me, what it was is just, it's time. And it's actually believing that time will make you able to process it a bit better. And just the, the, the distance. And it's also the fact that, that grief, the grief stays the same. So I remember seeing this beautiful diagram, which is like, grief stays the same. What changes is not the size of the grief, it's just the size of the world that you build around it and the space that you open around it so that your life is not just about that and what you've lost, but it's also about all these other things that you start to create around you. So in your case, the fact that you threw yourself into your work and you started a new relationship and you built things to, 
to rebuild your life and to refill it with new definitions of who you are. You know, not just I am Moni, I'm Moni who lives with this person, I'm Moni who has, you know, these habits, but I'm somebody who, you know, then you you build a bigger space. And in that space, your grief has space to breathe. So you can you can take it like a little moments and be like, okay, now I feel like crying about this relationship. And when you feel that, you're like, okay, well, am I safe? Am I in a safe space? Can I cry about this? And just, um, yeah, I, I recently, I mean, I still have a lot of moments when I think about the six years of living with my my ex-boyfriend. And as you said, it's a life. It's a life together. And you're not grieving just the past. Yeah, You're grieving not just the relationship with him, but the you that was in the relationship yeah. and the future that like, that's not going to happen anymore. Right. So it's all yeah. of that, that, that you feel like I, I fuck it. I I'm grieving his parents, you know, like I loved his parents. <laughs> so things like that, you know, but they're not dead. They're not gone. They're still there and they still love me. So, but my mind is just a very, like, it's, Sometimes I just have to pat my brain on the head and go, oh, you love this kind of like nostalgic shit, don't you? You know, like I'll look at it like a drawing and I'll be like, I can't look at it. I can't because it's going to make me cry. And I'm like, but what if I do? What if I I go full blast and I am this melodramatic bitch that cries at everything? Let let me be that child that wasn't allowed to cry when I wanted to, you know, like, can I just do that? And and the answer is yes. Like, I'm the one who decides. Like, there is no too much of a crybaby or there's no timeline, you know? So last summer, like, I would have moments when I'd have to talk myself into like, okay, like, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Just keep functioning, keep functioning, keep yourself floating. And eventually just trust that somehow things are going to get better. You don't know how because you're not omnipotent and omniscient you just don't know everything Mara so just trust that brains heal people heal nature heals and then you're gonna get better too so all the metaphors that I could think of connected to grief and things like that I tried to think of so one of them that that helped me was to think that that when you're grieving you're like in the bottom of a well you know and you don't know how to get out and you want to cry, but you don't let yourself cry because you think, well, if you start crying, you're going to drown. But then I thought, actually, uh, if you cry, your tears are salty. And so you're going to float and it's just going to bring you to the surface because you, if you're not crying to feel better. You're crying because you need to release it. So you know that you can't cry forever, although it, like in the moment you're like, oh, shit, this is never going to end. So then I just thought, well, if you cry, then little by little, you're just you're getting closer and closer to the surface and then you're going to get out of it because it brings you back to to where you've just spent all of that sadness that you had to spend and how do you deal with the memories oh. the memories are there and and the thing is that that's a very good question too because i i had like all the things the souvenirs and all the beautiful things from my ex-girlfriend who didn't think she was my girlfriend fuck that <laughs> shit uh, oh, but, this is you know, this is uh, like a joke. Uh, Berlin comedian uh, Pat Pat Moore. Uh, yeah. He he said, "Oh, it's one of the relationship when you break up, you realize you are not in a relationship." 
yeah those are those are uh so beautiful no when you're like what, what do you mean this wasn't a relationship but but uh you know but so i had all of this you know i was trying to recover from that and seeing all the objects that reminded me of her and it was for me such an intense relationship in like in the middle of a six-year relationship where you know after six years you're kind of like best friends with your partner it's not this crazy butterfly love but then after that ended I was dealing with that and then my boyfriend also broke up with me and I was like oh now I'm dealing with six years of memories you know so like everything like oh we got this place together we furnished this place together everything you know and the way you deal with the memories is that you just you don't try to deal with them you just go oh here's my brain allowing me like here's my brain being bringing up memories and I can get angry at it and like frustrated and be like why are you doing this but it's it's normal brain behavior. Like, of course, what else is it going to think about? Like, now I have some of the memories of my relationship stuck on a loop. And from time to time, I'll be in the middle of a Pilates class. And I'll remember one specific trip we took together. And I'm like, why this one? But sometimes it's not logical and there are no answers. So trying really hard to understand what your brain is doing is sometimes a waste of energy. And, and you can try, but you're probably going to get stuck in a loop. Or you can just go, oh, this is just my brain braining. This is just what brains do. It's, you know, there are sacks of meat with electricity in them. I don't have to take it so seriously. But what I can do is, okay, what do I want to use my time on? What do I want to build? You know? I think my brain works a little bit differently. Mm. Um, in my situation, I just feel my brain wouldn't visit any memories. Mm. Like uh, not the good one, not the bad one. Mm. And uh, I, I feel my issue is that uh, how can I go through the memories and to, to, mm. to understand the beauty of it, but also to accept, okay, there's no other way. Breakup was the owning, owning like uh, outcome of it. So mm. I think why my brain is not really visiting the memories is because I'm deeply, I'm afraid I would come out with another conclusion. Although mm. I know there's, there's no way because actually um, now I, I want to share with you because actually you, you recommended me this book uh, two weeks ago. Uh, it's uh, called Burn Out by, what's her name? Emily Nagoski. Yeah, I cannot pronounce her last name. I think it's really funny because two weeks ago we are supposed to have this podcast. Then I te text you, I'm like, oh, I'm burned out. I cannot move. Can we delay? And then you send me this uh, book. I'm like, oh, I really want to read a book about burnout. out. So I, I listened to it and I really binged. I listened to the whole book in two days. And uh, finally I finished it. And I'm like, okay, today I'm tired. I just want to watch Netflix. Then I turned on my Netflix and uh, the first thing recommended is, uh, is a documentary called uh, The Principles of Pleasure. And I click on it, it's the same girl again. I'm like, oh, she's everywhere. And I was like, oh, she's, she's following me. So mm -hmm. I, I found that that's quite funny. And uh, I, I think it's, it's really a great book, uh, like uh, from the female perspective. Uh, I think as a woman myself, I think uh, a large part of me is also misogynistic because uh, if you grow up in an environment telling you that women are less, telling you like, oh, it's all women's fault, the world supposed it's being this, 
uh, it's very hard to have a, um, like an unbiased view on, on gender. So, uh, and uh, I, I realized, okay, when I was listening to this book, uh, it's from the female perspective, then so many things I, 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 I experienced, but I couldn't describe. I, I don't know how to put it into words. It, it, it really helped me to conceptualize it. And uh, also, uh, I really like um, one part of it. It talks about, I forgot the effect. She explains why there are some like straight white men they doesn't understand there's uh, their sexism or racism in this world because uh, the road for them is flat. They cannot imagine that uh, the road for others is different. And I was like, oh, that's uh, how it works because uh, I, I used to have a, have a friend. Uh, he is a 190 uh, meter tall straight white man coming from a, a upper class family. And uh, he believes there's uh, no sexism, and he believes there's no racism, and um, and he says uh, now in workplace is so unfair that uh, uh, when 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 a job uh, when a job interview uh, there's a tie uh, between a woman and a man, they would prefer the woman, and he's like now I have to be better at everyone in order to get a job. I was like, isn't that how it works for a job interview? Like that, by definition, you need to be better than um, anyone. And uh, in this case, it's just when it's a tie, she gets an advantage, but it's not like if she's worse than you, she can get the job. And why are yeah. you? And uh, it's been thousands of years. It's always the other way around. And why are you so angry anyway? Yeah. And I feel, oh, that's how it means. So I think it's uh, it's really, really a great book. And, the, yeah. and then in this, uh, um, in this, uh, how do you say, uh, in this documentary, he's talking about a female pleasure. And one thing really, really like click me uh, is in the epi episode three, uh, they talk about the, uh, the rights to access to pleasure for people with any kind, like uh, no matter you are straight or, or gay or bisexual or transgender or fat or, or Asian or white or whatever, everyone has rights. Yeah, oh, Romanian. <laughs> yeah, so, so no matter who you are, you have the rights to access pleasure. And uh, then it really, resonate with me I, I was crying when I when I saw this because uh, because like growing up in China like uh, there's a very defined beauty beauty view that you have to be like a tall on 160 and a pale skin and a really really slim in order to be perceived good looking and uh, uh, and uh, growing up, uh, like I have the like uh, eating disorder, and I always uh, think I'm always like I feel I'm I'm too fat. I need to lose weight, which is true in that society. Like uh, um, I'm treated super fat there. And mm -hmm. then my ex, uh, my ex, uh, ex boyfriend, when we were together, he told me, uh, uh, he doesn't like my body. He think I'm too fat. And he wants me to, to lose weight. And, uh, and uh, at the beginning, I was like, okay, I will try to do more exercise. 
But after a while, I'm like, no, like I, I fought with my eating disorder for so many years. Like I, I don't want to go on that route. I know as soon as I want to lose weight again, I will start to uh, binge eating. And then I, I argued with him. Uh, and then in this documentary, it talked about this effect talk, uh, called spectating effect means when you are having sex uh, because of all the body shaming and uh, uh, all the uh, like uh, social pressure and uh, discrimination added on, on some certain group of people when they are having sex they cannot even um, enjoy the sex they, they, their mind is not in their body their mind is like next to the body looking at themselves judging themselves judging. yeah and uh, and it took, I was like, oh, of course I couldn't have an orgasm. Like, a, like a, for a woman, you need to be like focus, focus on your pleasure in order to experience, experience orgasm. And after we watched this, I'm like, oh, of course I never had an orgasm. And it's with my new partner. It's the first time in my life. I'm 32 years old. It's the first time in my life. I am able to experience orgasm. And uh, for so many years, I always thought it's a, a female orgasm. <laughs> yeah, uh, and for so many years in my life, I always thought, oh, it's my fault. Oh, maybe I'm just a uh, damaged uh, product. Maybe my, my structure is just not good. It's my fault. And uh, by like uh, watching this documentary, I'm, uh, I'm like, Oh, of course, it's not my fault. Like I grew up in China where like having sex is a thing. A woman can, <laughs> like women who enjoy pleasure is considered a slut and they, they are not supposed to have sex with anyone else other than their husband. Of course, like growing up in an environment like this, uh, plus having a fat body, uh, of course, like I, I shame well, myself. Not so much. You don't have a fat body. You have a body that is considered fat by the society yeah. that you were brought up in. Yes, yes. Because yes. if you ask me, I don't consider you fat. And if you ask a lot of people from this planet, maybe, I don't know, 70% of them will say, what are you talking about, Moni? But, you know, there will be some societies where they, they have this brainwashing. Yes. So. yes, yes, you are right. So my body was considered fat and un unpleasant and uh, in an environment like this also like sex was not allowed of course i i couldn't uh, concentrate like uh, during sex of course i was uh, unable to experience orgasm plus i was with a partner who who tell me my body is not attractive and that <laughs> like uh, i'm like wow this is uh, and now i understand oh of course it wasn't working so I, I was, I'm very sure this relationship, there's no other uh, option other than, than break up. And uh, after I watched this documentary, I quote him. Uh, I said, like, really, what you told me is really unkind, but it's not your fault because I also didn't know this is uh, totally not acceptable. But uh, next time, if a man tell me this, I will just say it's not working, let's stop. And next time, if you feel the same way about a woman, just tell her it's not working. Like, don't ever tell anyone their body is not beautiful. I agree. I agree. So, I mean, you, you, 
you're spot on. So there's no other way this could have worked. Yeah. Uh, like sometimes it's it's like a it's a good thought or a thought that has helped me a lot because last year I also started uh, following a podcast that I really fell in love with and then I became part of their coaching group and that provided me with a lot of help. Um, What's and the it's name? Called, it's called Unfuck Your Brain. Mm -hmm. Wow, uh, it's by, nice name. Uh, yeah, very good. It's by Cara Loventhal. She's a feminist coach mm -hmm. um, from New York and she's amazing. So she talks a lot about how it's it's like what she teaches is almost like cognitive behavioral therapy, but with a bit more layers added to it. And it's about how um, also about how like we we are not responsible for our thoughts. Thoughts come to us from different places. Sometimes it's like brains hiccuping, you know, like if you're if you if you hiccup, you don't get angry. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you start telling a story about how hiccuping is bad, then you get angry. It's the same. Brains produce all kinds of crazy thoughts. And sometimes the thoughts are from society. Sometimes they're from your family. Sometimes you heard it in a song or a Disney movie and it just gets stuck in your brain and then you believe it. And because you repeat it more and more, you believe that it's true. And then because you believe it's true, you take action from it. And because you take action from it, you create results that prove the thought true. But that doesn't mean that thought is like true. It's just a sentence that you decided to act upon. But thoughts have no moral value. And that's something that as somebody who was raised more or less Christian, like I'm, I'm a Christian Orthodox by baptism, but not like my family is not super religious, but it's everywhere around me in Romania growing up. Uh, you're taught that even if you have a bad thought, you know, you're bad, you're a bad person. So then you're like, <gasps> you know, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yes. I have a question. Do you um, have herpes? Yes. Yeah. I heard from my Romanian friend. Everyone have herpes because they all kiss the statues of uh, Jesus. And yeah. <laughs> but it's not like, it, yeah. So it's, yeah, that's another taboo kind of stupid thing. That's horrible. Um, so many things are, are taboo and shameful and you're like, yeah, it's anyway. Uh, but so where was I with the podcast? The podcast helped me. What were we talking about before that? I lost my trail of thought. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, we are talking about uh, uh, thoughts are not uh, good or bad. And you said this podcast helped you a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah because you had the thoughts about your body and oh yeah. yes 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 uh so it was about the the relationship with your your ex-boyfriend that uh this coach in her podcast has one thought that really helped me which is there is no other way things could have gone in that moment given what you believed in and what your ex believed in in that very moment who you were in those moments this is the only reality that could have existed because that's who you were then and that's who he was then and that's the only way it could have been and it's not good or bad it's just the only way things could have gone because if they could have gone in a different way they would have gone in a different way so that kind of helps you make peace with things because you're like well it's just his background his upbringing his thoughts that interact with my background my upbringing my thoughts and my emotions and everything then this is like a, a Venn diagram and what's in the middle is the, is the result of this interaction. So thinking about how maybe it could have gone differently. No, it couldn't have. This is the only way it could have gone. So that helped me a bit and to think, okay, 
there's nothing I did or I could have done. If this person believed something about me, if my ex-girlfriend, uh, mm -hmm. you can't see me, like, but I'm doing air quotes. Uh, so if my ex-girlfriend had a thought in her head that was, this relationship can't work, then there's nothing I could have done mm -hmm. to change that because she's filtering everything through this bias. Mm -hmm. And the same, if your ex-boyfriend had the thought, Oh, I don't like. I prefer women who look different than like. I'm sorry, but you, you, your body is perfect the way it is. Yeah. You just need to find a different boyfriend. That's it. So yeah, you, you, you know, like uh, when I was uh, listening this book, she also talked about uh, like the 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 book you recommend Bone Out. Uh, it's a it's a book called Bone Out, but actually it's not really about the career Bone Out, but it's about all the stress. The, uh, the society put on women specifically. And uh, I, I really, really recommend uh, everyone, including men uh, reading it because uh, um, she explains things so well. Like uh, uh, for example, she explained the concept of uh, learned, uh, learned helplessness. Um, mm -hmm. I read so many books about mental health. So I know the concept very well. But the, the way she explained to it, I burst into tears. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what, what I was experiencing. And also in this book, she also talked about body acceptance. And uh, I was really crying when she said, like, your body is beautiful the way you are. And uh, like in China, it's like I, growing up, I never heard about this, you know, like uh, be, before my current boyfriend, I... I never heard anyone say this to me. I remember yeah. my, my first boyfriend, he, he said, oh, uh, he said, uh, you can be fatter, but uh, uh, then you need to be, you, you can gain weight, but you need to be taller. Otherwise you are not proportional. And my last <laughs> boyfriend was like, uh, you are fat and uh, uh, that makes me don't want to have sex with you. You need to lose weight. I'm like, oh, how many, like, you, like a shit guys. Could you tell him? Could you tell him like, oh, actually, I would need your penis to be two centimeters bigger and like a couple of millimeters thicker. Could you change that about your body? You can't. Oh, what a pity. Fuck you. You know, like, yeah, no, it's just so ridiculous that yeah. that anybody, not only a man, but anybody, because women do this to women, too, yeah. especially parents to their their children. Um, to say that somebody's body needs to look different than what it looks like should be considered some form of crime yeah. because it's it's not okay this is my body i live in it you, it's not you, know, you know when you are talking about this you sound like a, this is of course of course it's this way but but the society especially like people from like me from a society totally different in that society uh what you said is totally uh how do you say controversy for example growing up uh my most admired uh, tv host a woman um her, her slogan is that either you die or you you get slim and uh, and uh, i i worshiped her and she um uh, how do you say um uh do com uh, uh, tv commercials uh to present uh, uh, uh products which can bleach your pussy to make it pink and then now growing now i'm 32 years old i'm like wow 
like what kind of shaming, what kind of like self-hatred you have to say things like that and to promote products like that. And uh, growing up, my mom is like, oh, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat. And uh, sometimes she will say nice things. She's like, actually, don't look that fat. As long as you wear long skirts, always cover your legs. I mean, you're saying this, but I'm not actually coming from a more enlightened culture. I'm just now because I started listening to this podcast last year and the coach Kara Loventhal, according to, I guess, most beauty standards is not like she does not fit most beauty standards, but she loves herself and it didn't come overnight. She had huge body confidence issues, but she worked her way through it and she understood that it's just a thought that like it's not a fact that she's fat or that fat is bad or all of this because in the US that's a, it's a huge industry like judging people by their body mass index is is such a profitable thing for medicine for diet culture so just this year being exposed to this and starting to follow instagram people who are body positive uh, fat people people who are like yes this is my body and i don't care if it, if i weigh i don't know how much i don't own a scale this for me changed my mentality because I come from a country, Romania is not better than China at really? this at all. No, fuck no. My mom, when I was 15, I was looking at my legs and I thought, oh, do I have cellulite? And I was 15 or 16 and I think I, I probably weighed, I don't know, 40 something kilos. I was a skinny bitch. And my mom was like, oh, you do have cellulite. That's strange. When I was your age, I didn't have cellulite. You know, so... Instead of telling me, oh, that doesn't matter anyway, she was like, you do have it. Oh. What's and so cellulite? Was, cellulite is like when you squeeze your skin and it looks like an orange. You oh, know, like a, I have that. Yeah. So, but like, and then all the magazines, all the cosmopolitans and the whatever were like, how to make it go away. And I remember buying creams that had magical things in them. And I like thinking, okay, if I do this, then I'm not going to have cellulite. And I went through a phase of like, disordered eating I never like I never uh binged and purged uh and I consider myself lucky that I didn't it didn't occur to me as a as a a thing but I went through a phase of like going on a keto diet and I was super convinced about this is like the only way that you can be healthy is if you completely eliminate sugar from your life and no pasta and no pizza and no none, none of this and I lost a lot of weight and I looked super skinny And I was super proud of myself. And I went to like, uh, even like measure how much fat I had in my body. And I, and that was, I don't know, five years ago or some four years ago. And I'm like, what the fuck was I doing? Like, just, you know, because in a way it's a way of controlling yourself, right? It's like you have control. And as humans, we hate not having control. So if you can control your body, you're like, yes, I'm winning at life, but you're not. Because what you're trying to do is thinking that if I look a certain way, I'm going to be happy. Mm-hmm. But that's not what, where happiness comes from. So now, like last summer when I was depressed, I I was, I was weighed 50 kilos just because I didn't have any appetite to eat. So I was like, oh, I guess I have to feed myself. Uh, you know, just come on, Mara, eat something. And I just didn't want to eat anything. And finally, like when things started to get better, I was, I was going to this treatment center that does neurofeedback. It's mm-hmm. like a... Uh, electric uh, something for your head and I think it helped with my anxiety 
But every time I went there, I passed by this amazing bakery and they had really good croissants. So I don't know what helped me with my anxiety, if it was the neurofeedback or the croissants. But now I weigh 60 kilos. And I think in the past, if I if I had weighed 60 kilos, I would be like, 60 kilos, look at your belly. And now I'm like, look at my butt. My butt looks amazing. And like, my thighs look amazing. And sure, my clothes don't fit me. But it's not because my body is too big for my clothes. It's because my clothes are not good enough for my body. I just need different clothes. You know, like, it's, it's so many ways of looking at it. And the people who judge you for this, fuck them, there's other people out there who are body positive, And that's the people you want in your life. So yeah. <laughs> wow, it's, it's uh, amazing to know that uh, people like you also had the body acceptance issue. Because uh, in my uh, eyes, like you look perfect. <laughs> Thank you. But like, you know, I have I have a belly now, like if I if I had if Mara from today travels to Mara from five years ago, I think Mara from five years ago would be horrified. And she'd be like, oh my God, like, really? You let yourself go. Look at the belly you have, you know, like, oh, but I'd be like, it's not, it's a false sense of happiness that you have. Like, how can you control this? Also, give me that chocolate. Chocolate is heaven. You know, like, give me that dopamine. Like, healthy food oh no there's only healthy food and the other food is evil no that that's bullshit so fuck diet culture i'm really now i believe in this with a passion and this is proof for me and for you that our upbringing was fucked up but isn't it amazing that brains change mm-hmm. and it isn't isn't it amazing that something that you thought was normal back when you were younger you were like, oh, this woman is my hero. Now you're like, this is not a woman. I And that, in one, on the one hand, you can say, oh my God, what a terrible thing that I believed that. I'm so embarrassed that I ever believed that. But actually it's amazing and you should be proud that you don't believe that anymore because escaping conditioning that you spend years of your life in, that's the victory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, uh, another thing I want to talk about is that uh, uh, like the book you recommend me is uh, from a uh, female point of view and uh, um i want to talk about a change in me like growing up like uh, i remember uh when people were talking about when i was 16 or something people were talking about oh all these um top uh, designers are all men and i was like yeah because uh, women cannot do a good job and uh, when when i go to see see doctors uh, like a gyne- uh, how do you call it a female doctor gynecologist gynecologist uh, yeah every time I'm like yeah I'm not going to discriminate men I'm going to just uh, I don't mind if it's man or it's woman I think uh, like discrimination is bad and um, I but over the years I learned oh it's not about discrimination uh, I did, in fact, feel assaulted by by my gynecologist last year, and uh, besides that, also, how can you expect this person really understand your struggle if he never experienced uh, like a period uh, pain himself, mm-hmm. and uh, like uh, well, you can solve that very easily. You just punch him in the balls, and then you'll understand period pain. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what I I want to say is that, um, I I in the past I didn't want to uh oh bitch bitch about uh, like uh, being a woman, and I uh now I start to more enlightened. I realize oh I I grew up in a uh misogynistic uh, society, and I uh I took for granted so many things to be to be default. And now, while growing up, I start to learn more, uh, uh, and I start to read books from female perspective, and I realize, oh, actually, indeed, there are lots of things like men cannot understand and men don't experience, and uh, it's not a woman we are less talented. It's just the the society is 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 built by men and designed for men. And the structure, uh, it's all um, like things don't change overnight. It doesn't say, okay, since 1916, women start to have rights, then everything is equal. Uh, why all the uh, remaining structure of the of the world is is a male dominated structure? And uh, I start to understand uh, the female perspective. But before that, I was kind of misogynistic myself, and. Uh, um, I feel it's interesting. For example, now I can see. Oh, of course, women. We 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 are not. Uh, we don't. We didn't achieve so much as men because every time as a as a teenager, as a younger, I turn on TV. All those shows about women, they just fight each other, they trick each other, and all their things in life is about uh, being popular and find a handsome man. And uh, why are women turn on TV? All those male characters they are achieving in science, in law, in uh, in philosophy, and they have an example. But we don't. We just have uh, all those bitches. But also, we have so many female historical figures who have achieved things, but a lot of them are not popular and are not talked about. So yeah. now, more and more, you'll see like you know the Facebook posts when somebody says. Nobody ever speaks about this person who helped uh, NASA and the Apollo whatever mission to the moon because she did the programming. And so you find out about all these women that you didn't even know existed. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. Women can do that. But when I was little and you were little, like women were like, what, what can you be? Well, a ballerina, a singer, a dancer, a princess, you know, like, oh, I hope I'm a princess and somebody saves me. Yeah, yeah. When I grow up, like it's one of my joke. Like, uh, uh, I said, like my my grandpa, uh, he he only talked with me once. He said, "Moni, you are so you talk so loud. No man will ever marry you." And I was like, "Why are you telling me this? I'm only five years old." And it sounds funny, but it's actually what happened. I was actually five yeah. years old. And when, yeah. when a girl is five years old and you tell her, her her biggest achievement in life is to marry a man and I'm not going to achieve that, then you already programmed me that all I want in life is to find a man and I'm not thinking about anything else. And um, yeah, so now I am able to see more uh, feminist uh, point of view and I, I start to see, oh, that's what's happened. Oh, of course I feel this way. And uh, I, I am very excited to read more about it and learn more because mm -hmm. I think the feminist uh, movement, I think uh, for lots of people who's not so woke, uh, is uh, because there are some extreme uh, examples 
within this movement, people like to always think about the feminists are, are, are aggressive and, uh, uh, and they have a really strange or exaggerated request, but that's only a small part of it. But the whole, but yeah. I think it's also like a, percept, a perception problem, no? Like when you think women who are assertive are aggressive, that's also because you're accustomed to women being quiet and polite and not making any noise, no? Mm -hmm. So maybe if you're, uh, if you are programmed that way, a woman saying you, saying to you and telling you your, her opinion, like with confidence is shocking, but that's your problem. That's not her problem, you know, like, so that's the thing. Maybe you'll think, oh, she's aggressive. No, she's not aggressive. She's being assertive and you think it's aggressive, you know? Like, yeah, like a woman are not supposed uh, to have a voice. Mm, women are not supposed to take space, take up space. You're supposed to be tiny. Like, don't bother anybody. Just, you know, and in fact, like, I consider my parents quite open-minded people in general, but they're still very much products of their time and their society. My parents grew up most of their life in communist Romania. I mean, a lot of things I can blame them for, but they didn't know better and they don't know better. They just, and they're not even aware of it, you know? So they really did the best they could, but they did a lot of damage anyway, which I think is maybe part of being a parent. Um, but my mother would always tell me uh, things like, Mara, if you're going to behave this way, nobody's going to want to be around you. Mara, if you talk so much, nobody's going to want to be around you. You have to think about what you want to say, then close your mouth, think if it's okay to say it, then open your mouth and say it, like, don't speak without thinking, you know, and, and of course, then it makes you doubt about everything you ever want to say. But you know what, I have a lot of things to say, and a lot of them are good. So I'm not going to shut up. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> For women. Yes, I, I, I uh, you talk about the depression last summer. Um, I want to ask you, do you have a, a uh, experience with uh, mental health challenges before or is that uh, your first encounter? Um, so I had uh, another phase of depression when I was like 22, 23 mm -hmm. and I was actually uh, I had moved to Berlin in October Ooh. to be with my ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-boyfriend um, and I arrived there and I was supposed to finish my uh, thesis for my bachelor so um, before you continue, I want to uh, interrupt you. So how much rent were you paying at that time? Oh, actually, I was not paying that much rent then because it was 2009. Uh -huh. And uh, I was splitting the, the bills with my ex-boyfriend who was living in Vanze and in a flat that he started renting oh. a long, long time ago. Uh -huh. So he was paying like 400 euros and oh, so I was it, nothing, it's, nothing. It's fine. No one wants to move to onesie. So it's fine. You lost that apartment. Okay, please yeah. continue. No, but I he he still has that flat actually. Um, the the point is that like looking back, I understand why I got depressed. But I think it's always in retrospect that you understand and you have that kind of compassion for yourself. Uh, but I I stayed in Berlin three months and then. Um, it was cold. It was gray. It was dark. It was depressing. I was in Vanze. Mm. I didn't have any income. Like I didn't have money. I was just a student finishing her degree. I had never written a thesis before. I didn't know how to do that. They don't really teach you that well how to do write theses mm -hmm. uh, in Romania. And maybe in general, like the public education system is not so clear about how to write 50 pages of something. Um, so I, I was like, I went from 
hyperactive to only having one thing to do. And now I know myself better. And I know when I have only one thing to do, I go crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, or I have too much time and my mind just, you know, goes in circles. Um, so that was my first experience with depression. And that one kind of just uh, shifted because uh, then I broke up with him. Um, I started a job. I finished my thesis. I had, I got my cat. Um I, I put a lot of uh, the merit of my better mental health on her. She's she's responsible for that. May she live a long life and be hopefully immortal. Um, yeah, spring came. Spring matters a lot. Sunlight and all of this. Um, I started another relationship. I You know, a lot of things started changing. I started a master's degree that I really enjoyed. And so then I started getting busy with other things. And I kind of forgot that I was depressed somehow. Mm -hmm. I was also very like a lot younger but now that I'm like 33 well now I'm 34 but like when I when it started the depression started and I was 33 I'm like fuck now I'm 33 I should have my shit together by now I don't have children I don't have like I'm not married I I don't know what I'm doing with my life like I don't have a coherent plan I don't have clear goals sure I have a job sure my students love me sure my friends love me sure I have two amazing cats but like when you're depressed, some things like don't matter. You can have all the things in the world and you're like, yeah, but I'm missing some other things that are wrong about me. And the belief that there's something wrong about you that you need to fix, that is one of like the biggest pains, you know, because you're like, no, no, you don't understand. Whatever book you give me, whatever solution you give me, I am a special broken snowflake. There's nobody as broken as me. And all of these things can't possibly function for me because I'm fucked up forever. So yeah, that's, uh, I I recently started believing that maybe I have ADHD, uh, which uh, apparently kind of is a, has as comorbidity, anxiety and depression and OCD and other beautiful things like that. Um, So it's like, if you have ADHD and you don't know it and you don't understand it and you're neurodivergent in a world of people who are neurotypical and everything is built for them by them and you're judged according to this, it's very likely that you're going to get depressed because you're comparing yourself to people with completely different brains. And your brain is not wrong. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So it's women don't get diagnosed with ADHD as often as men. It, it goes undiagnosed for a long time because women are good at masking it and integrating and hiding it mm-hmm. and just like you know swallowing all the problems and keeping it inside and it's funny I have a student who's a doctor a retired doctor and she's like a, a second mom to me we talk about everything but she also has some very fixed ideas and when I told her hey I think I might have ADHD she said no Mara you don't no you don't I know you you've been my teacher for five years you don't have ADHD and I'm like excuse me <laughs> I think I know my experience of life, you know? She's like, no, you don't, you probably are a gifted person, but you don't have ADHD. And I'm like, why not both? There's like, you know? So I'm starting now to think, okay, well, if my brain is simply different, then of course my life is not gonna look like all these examples of lives that I see around me, but I'm still valuable to everybody around me just because my brain is my brain and there's no other brain like it so i i also think i have adhd um mm. but getting diagnosed in germany is really difficult like uh, i need mm. to go through all those paperwork in german and everything 
So I'm not <laughs> bo bothered to do it. And uh, I think I'm this type of ADHD that uh, uh, I read uh, quite a few books about ADHD and they all say the, uh, the best and the simplest uh, treatment on ADHD is to get diagnosed, like to understand that you have ADHD. Yeah. And when I start to understand I have ADHD, I immediately feel better. And, uh, um, and also I, I read the books, I, I learned a few tricks, like uh, how to organize my day, how to organize my notes. Uh, and uh, with just like without medication, just, just the uh, um, organizational knowledge, it improved my, my life tremendously. Like in yeah. the past, I, I cannot get anything done. Like everything is a mess and I'm always fall behind on deadline and I lose everything. And I um, people always say make notes, but I'm like, why I make notes? I will never find it. What's the point? And um, then I read <laughs> a few books and they all point to similar things. And eventually I adopt uh, this technique called a uh, bullet journal. Mm. I don't know if you know. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I there are lots of like different variations, but I really recommend to read the book called the Bullet Journal Method. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, written by the person who uh, invented this method, and uh, then you can know uh, the the full power of it because uh, uh, with all those notebooks on the market, it's really not flexible. But uh, in order to maximize the power, you you learn the. Uh, logic behind it and you design the template uh, with your own needs and uh, I learned that and uh, now with my bullet journal is the first time in my life that I'm on top of things that I, I can get things done and I don't um, forget things and I, I know where are things are where and what I need to do and how to find the information I need and uh, yeah, it's it's like amazing. It's the first time I feel, oh my God, I'm organized. I'm on top of stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's that that is the, when you said um, the most important thing that helped you is to say to yourself, okay, I have this, but like if I accept I have this, what tips and tricks can I apply for myself that help me? That I think it's true with like an ADHD diagnosis, even if you don't get an official one, but the things you learn, I think that self-diagnosis is valid because there's a lot of like within the community of people with ADHD, uh, there are going to be some people saying, oh, no, like, don't just say you have it. But like, actually, what what do you mean that if I don't get diagnosed until that moment, I don't have it. And magically, when a doctor says you have it, then I do. No, I, you know, if it works for you and it helps you, then think you have it, you know, but if it helps you, like if it empowers you in a way, because it gives you self-compassion and it removes the guilt, that's good. Because like a lot of people are like, why do you want to limit yourself with this label? And I was trying to explain to them, it's not limiting for me. It's, it's liberating. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, it just gives me, it takes away all of that guilt again, mm -hmm. you know, that, oh, uh, you never finish anything, you start a million things, you have a million passions, you know, and you never finish things. And well, and I'm like, no, but that's, that's not bad in itself. It's just I have a different way of operating. I'm really good at coming up with ideas and solutions, not as good at implementing, <laughs> you know, so, but is that a crime? It's a crime when you judge everybody by what they implement and what they finish doing, you know, 
but people need to have creative people and and like we're valuable to society just the way we are so if you accept that then you really become limitless because you're like oh let's not look at the things I'm not good at let's look at my superpowers because I do have superpowers so Mm -hmm. and I want to learn to embrace Mm -hmm. them you know I think there are many like different schools, different thoughts on ADHD. Some some thoughts they don't even believe it's a disease or it's an issue. It's just like when we are hunter gatherers, like there's different responsibilities. Like mm. for example, if if you uh, you you like ADHD people can hyper focus, but they cannot exactly. focus in general. Then they are hunters because they can get the animal. Then they can do whatever they want, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and also I I I listen to a uh, like a TED talk. It says uh, like there's a little girl like she uh, she cannot focus, and her family is like uh, uh, really worried, and then. The doctor said, "Oh, she's just she like likes dance. Just take her to dance." And eventually, ah, this is the yeah. Ken Robinson, Sir Ken oh, Robinson. Okay, yeah. And then the, eventually, I know the TED talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. Like eventually, this girl became a famous dancer and uh, uh, have a multi-million business. But if it's today's society, we just drag her until she she submit and uh, sit in front of desk. But uh, not everyone should be a scholar, and there are so many people they they don't need to to do desk research. They they are good with their hands, they are good with their body. They do so many other different things, and it's just extremely unfair to say, okay, uh, we only value those people who fit into this category, who can sit and read. No, it's it's bullshit, and mm-hmm. also, uh, yeah, because the world needs like the world is an ecosystem and it needs all of this diversity to function. Mm -hmm. Um, I follow this other coach uh, because I just find her very inspiring. Um, She's called Simone Seoul. She's she's born in South Korea and she lives now in South Korea, but she was also uh, like, I think she lived in the US for a while and she has ADHD, she has depression, she has anxiety. She says that sometimes she just gets catatonic and she just cannot do anything. But she has built a multi-million industry of coaching because she's an excellent marketer. She's very like, I don't know, she's she's bizarre, but she's like embracing how bizarre she is and her authenticity is what sells. So I recommend you to like follow her just to how see do her you find her? Uh, it's called Joyful Marketing, I think, or Simone Soul, uh, S-E-O-U-L. Uh, and she has a podcast called Joyful Marketing. Mm-hmm. So her courses are really like expensive for my budget, but there's like she's like so good at marketing herself. And she's like, no, no, if you sign up for this, you're going to become a better coach. Like because she markets to coaches to get more clients. So like she teaches other coaches how to sell better. But I remember she had one post that said that there is a a U-shaped hole in the universe Mm -hmm. and your only purpose in life is to fill it and you're doing that fine. So basically there is like, if if the world is like a puzzle, then there's a tiny little piece that has my name on it Mm -hmm. and only I can fit that hole. Like there's only one Mara that can fit in it and is the same. There's only like, you're fulfilling your purpose of being Moni you know so 
That's uh, beautiful. So uh, I uh, I want to ask you, like, uh, when you get out of the depression last year, uh, first uh, question, like, uh, uh, did you have a resistance to labor it depression? Just a moment, let me shut the door because the, the men in my flat are talking. Uh, <laughs> so, I don't know exactly if I'm already out of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I still have moments. Um, your question was if I had resistance to get out of it. No, do you have a resistance to quiet depression? Ah, um, I'm not sure what to call it, to be honest, because I think um, if you look at it from the typical perspective of what a depression looks like, my depression looks like uh, me painting a million things, me writing a million poems, me going to Italy and doing a three-week Italian course in Florence, uh, making new friends, joking, uh, you know, like just, I can't sit still. But that's because when I'm under-stimulated, like, and that's something that I learned recently about ADHD that makes sense to me, that ADHD people get depressed when they're under-stimulated. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that I always need to be doing a million things. Mm -hmm. you know so a lot of people are like wow Mara but you can't be depressed because like look at you you're so active mm -hmm. and I'm like yeah but depression doesn't look the same for everybody mm -hmm. I, I maybe maybe it's not depression I don't know uh what to call it because I can never be in anybody else's head mm -hmm. I just know that I don't feel okay mm -hmm. and I know that I don't want to feel the way I'm feeling or I don't want to think the way I'm thinking and sometimes I just want to take my brain out and replace it with another brain you know, or cut out the part of my brain that's not working the way I think it should mm -hmm. and have only good thoughts. Mm -hmm. But um, but that's, yeah, I don't know if it's 100%. I don't even know if we can say for sure, oh, this is depression, this is this, because it's going to look different for everybody. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, people will be like, oh, you're not depressed. You're just grieving, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's grief, if it's depression, if it's seasonal uh, affective disorder, if it's ADHD, if it's just being human, and this is part of the human experience, it could be all of those or none of those. Maybe it's a, 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 a special mental health problem that only exists for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, what, uh, from last year to this year, what helped you the most? Like uh, what small tricks or practice you did happen the most for you? I think uh, something that helped me a lot was uh, doing loving kindness meditation. It's oh, called wow. Like, uh, wow, this is, uh, you, you are the first person I know doing this. It happened to me tremendously too. Yeah. I have a really close friend in the US who uh, I haven't seen since the start of the pandemic. Uh, he's my hiking buddy. Uh, and uh, he was doing Tonglen with another woman on Zoom, and she was living in Switzerland, he was in Boston, and I was in Barcelona, and they invited me to join them. And just, I guess, the concept of, um, of loving kindness and of the fact that it's not like you need to work to deserve love or you need to work to deserve compassion, but you can offer it to yourself all the time. This concept helped me a lot, just um so the meditation practices but they were not many of them but they helped as a concept like just wishing other people may you be well may you be happy may you be loved that kind of fills you up with love when you give love it fills you up with love and another thing that helped me is to realize that when when my brain is offering me negative thoughts 
uh, and is panicked and is experiencing, like when my body is experiencing fear or anxiety or all of these things, it's not doing it like against me. It's actually coming from a place of love. Like it's trying to do its best to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. So uh, a friend of mine who is in my coaching group, she told me, just imagine that if you had a translator, like a, that there was a language to translate what your brain is trying to say, is just, you're understanding the wrong message. What it's trying to say is, I love you, Mara, but I don't know how to say it better. Mm-hmm. So just thinking that my brain is actually there to help me survive you know and that it's trying its best to keep me alive even if that manifests itself in the wrong ways like overanalyzing overthinking things trying to resist reality trying to find solutions when there's no solution to being a human with human feelings Mm -hmm. that's you know cultivating that compassion every day for myself that helped me the most just infinite self-compassion yeah, I, I think uh, one reason I really, really like um, the book you recommend me, Burn Out by Emily Nagoski, Nagoski, is that um, in this book, she talked, oh, do you have issues of loving yourself? If you have this issue, then try loving kindness meditation because you start love someone else, then you can cultivate that love and the compassion for yourself. And I was really impressed because uh, uh, like uh, around one year ago, uh, I ran into a meta meditation by, by chance. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really, really like uh, fundamentally changed me because uh, I, I remember once I, uh, I, I, I did uh, acid uh, and uh, uh, I, I went meditation. I want to, because I read a book called The Lost Connections. And I want to, to learn uh, how can I uh, meditate. And uh, when I was meditating at that time, it's really visualized. I just feel at that time, I had a lot of issues with my work, with my coworker. And uh, for a very long time, when I was doing comedy, I believed everyone hates me. And, but, and then doing that meditation, I just feel like I was in a very dark, like a... Uh, dark dangerous forest and while I was meditating I feel like sun sunlight came in and everything started to uh, uh, like uh, uh, open it and I was uh, welcomed by the forest and uh, then when I came out from that uh, uh, meditation I realized oh no one hates me that uh, uh, most people just don't know me and mm-hmm. um, what they don't know they cannot like it uh, uh, even they have negative thoughts is also because it's caused not by hatred but caused by um, lack of understanding and uh, that can be changed and uh, then every day I practice uh, uh, loving kindness meditation and uh, um, like uh, this this love this compassion feeling like uh, very soon it uh, I, I feel oh uh, when I go to go to a supermarket, I um, I'm more mindful. I want to make this person. I want to make her her day better. And when I encounter with the mailman, I want. Uh, in the past, if they they uh, ring the bell and they don't come upstairs, I will be mad. And now I'm like, yeah, they they go to deliver so many package every day. Of course, they don't want to do extra work. And now like I. I, I want to make them happy. I want to make them having a good day. And I also feel, 
soon I start to realize I also deserve this happiness. Like I deserve to be loved. And uh, instead of saying all those really strict, really like harsh words to myself, I start to, to think, okay, I also deserve this compassion I have for others. So I, that's one of the reasons I feel like uh, uh, Emily, her book is really great because there are so many tips, like uh, it's like, like she's so on the point. Like if I have read her book like a few years ago, I wouldn't have to wait until I stamp upon this this uh, you don't meditation. Know, maybe maybe now is when you understood it because I had the same mm -hmm. thought. For example, with the Power of Now by mm -hmm. Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. Like when I was first depressed, I had a friend of mine who lives in Berlin actually, uh, and she she recommended me this book, and it was before I got depressed. And she was like, "You have to read this book, The Power of Now. It's amazing." And I was just like, I remember I was like, "Oh, The Power of Now," <laughs> you know. And then after I got depressed and after I came out of it, I read the book and I was like, oh, shit, I should have read the book before. Then I wouldn't ever be depressed. Mm -hmm. And no, it's just I wasn't ready for it then. Mm -hmm. You know, like I couldn't have understood it then. So I think some things come when they come and like thinking, oh, if only I had seen it before, I would have saved so much time of my life. But who cares? The past doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cool. Uh, thank you so much uh, for the for the chat today. It's, uh, it's really, really great. And uh, I really like all those uh, uh, resources you recommended, uh, especially from female point of view. So there are two podcasts you recommend today. One is called Unfuck Your Mind. Um, I think it's Unfuck Your Brain, uh, if I'm not wrong, by Cara Loventhal. And the other one is, it's mostly like about marketing, but I just like following Simone Seol on social media because she's so inspiring. Just mm -hmm. showing you what a person who has had mental health struggles and who admits to being like a human being with a mind that's just all over the place. Mm -hmm. She's like, I can, I am all of this. And yet I am also a badass that who can create and who can do all of this. And I, and who's now earning millions of dollars. And I started as a tarot card reader in Korea. Like, she's like, I just, you know. <laughs> and that was I don't know six years ago in her career plan and now she's she's I don't know how much money she's raised only this month because she decided that this month all the money she makes from all the courses that she sells and all the books that she sells all of them are going to go to Ukraine charities all of them mm -hmm. so you know and I think it's been more than two hundred thousand dollars in a month wow. that she's directly donated so I find her very inspirational especially because when you have men any kind of mental health struggle, one of the biggest things that helps, for me at least, is to realize you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Like, to realize that whatever you're going through, somebody else has gone through it and come out of it. Yeah. That maybe your timeline is uniquely yours, but you just got to hang in there, float if you need to, but it, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, just sometimes it helps just to think of really exaggerated examples. Like sometimes it helps me to think that one of my favorite musicians, who's um, John Frushanti from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm -hmm. he was for four years just like living in an absolute dump. There's a little documentary made about him. Uh, I don't know who filmed it. And it's just like blood on the walls and he's like completely high on heroin and mm -hmm like really almost 
on the border of death and now he's out of it he's performing he's meditating every day doing yoga running and he's come out of that so mm -hmm. sometimes it helps me to think people have come out of worse <laughs> so if they can do it i can do it because i'm human i'm not an alien i'm not an exceptionally broken human so mm -hmm. and these examples of people with mental health struggles who still have a a, a joyful life it, it helps you realize that this is just the human condition it's it's just 50 50 you'll have 50 percent of shit and 50 percent of glory and that's just how it is you know you can't escape the 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 negative part and the other part is beautiful because you have the contrast yeah Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. I will totally off the podcast you recommended and uh, uh, hope you have a nice evening and uh, I will see you soon in Berlin. I hope so. And yeah, like I'm hoping to to uh, like listen to all of your advice for open mics and all of this. And mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to a one month and a half in Berlin soon. Cool. See you yeah. soon. Bye bye. Thank you, Moni. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.